1: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Benesh maid and this week we revisit a series of interviews with musicians James McVinney, Eliza McCarthy and Timo Andres about a rare performance of composer Philip Glass's Music in 12 Parts back in May 2017. A milestone in minimalist music slowly revealing itself through hypnotic patterns of change over four hours. And the music sounds a little bit
2: like it comes from outer space.
3: Maybe you start making connections between each part and each player, and it kind of turns into this cloud of sensation.
4: I think there's this popular conception that Phillips music is all about repetition, when it's actually really all about change. Premiered in
1: 1974. Music in 12 parts has only ever been performed by the composer's group the Philip Glass Ensemble but on May the 1st 2017 that changed. In his 80th birthday year the composer gave his blessings to a new generation of artists led by Bedroom communities pianist and organist James McVinney to perform the piece.
4: Uh, I'm not a, I'm not at all a purist uh, in, with anybody's work let alone my own. I, music uh, The currency of music, to me, can travel easily uh, from place to place and from uh, musical perspectives from one to another. Uh, We've seen that the music of Bach is all around us in every form that you can imagine. It's not hurt his reputation.
1: (laughs) Philip Glass there speaking in an archive interview about the idea of performance and interpretation. In this podcast, we speak to three of the ten performers. We begin with James McVinney, followed by pianist Eliza McCarthy, both of those recorded in London, and then the composer-pianist Timo Andres, who joined us from New York on Skype. James started with what we could expect from this music marathon. I was going to ask a layman's question. The title of the piece, Music in 12 Parts, what does it actually mean? It means that there are 12 different sections to it, um,
2: each of which lasts for around 20 minutes. I mean, give or take a few minutes depending on how fast you play. The two recordings that I know, um, interestingly, take different speeds. It does go quite a lick, and there are some really virtuosic moments to it. Individual moments of virtuosity in each of the lines, but also just as an ensemble peace it's going to be a real task of stamina for all of us um, so the whole thing lasts for around four hours and the music sounds a little bit like it comes from outer space i mean it's this kind of really other music
1: Why did you want to uh, attempt something that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a piece of music. It's kind of everything. It's, it's an experience. It's, it's a, a, a marathon. Well, I mean, it's,
2: um, it's certainly going to be hard work. I mean, I <clears throat> have been completely obsessed with this piece for uh, an awfully long time. And I've been playing more and more of Philip's music on the organ. And I've been experimenting with music production software and layering organ textures in the same way that the philip glass ensemble play so this kind of this challenge seemed like an inevitable one really and in philip's 80th year it seemed like a really good uh, moment to try
1: who did you choose i mean that that must have been a well thought out process because you need musicians that are like-minded perhaps definitely musicians with a sense of adventure and um,
2: musicians who are all willing to take risks. I've really been wanting to work with Timo Andres, uh, the pianist, um, in a performing capacity for ages and ages, and also just coming across like-minded musicians here in London. Um, Eliza McCarthy, this is the first time that uh, I'll be playing with her, um, and also David Kaplan, the American pianist as well, who's Timo's duo partner. And then there are some other very close friends that I do make music with um, regularly. Liam Byrne, viola de gamba player. He's going to be lending his talents as well. Um, And then two wonderful members of the European ensemble Stargaze, Micah van der Linde and Marlies van Gangelen. Micah plays the flute and Marlies plays the oboe. And Josephine Stevenson is going to be singing here from London, and she's also based in Paris. And then we have Yuki Numata who's playing the violin.
1: As you mentioned at the beginning, you've obviously been playing Philip Glass's music in various forms um, for quite a while now. Some of the musicians here will have a lesser experience of his music. What kind of advice will you give them if they ask?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm sure they'll have all done lots of practice. I mean, you know, these are some of the greatest musicians working today in in, uh, contemporary music. So I'm sure they won't ask me for any advice at all. I always find with playing Philip Glass, certainly on the organ in a live context. You have to have tremendous control. I always think a bit about playing glasses music a little bit like playing Bach's music in a sense. Your job as a performer is really just to bring the music into the world. The music is so unique and so special that if you just play the notes in the right order then your job is done. One thing that struck me from speaking to you is, is
1: the sense that this is very carefully planned. Yeah
2: I mean really it's going to be a a voyage of discovery for us putting it all together there's nothing quite like that first moment in a rehearsal when you when you bring together all of the weeks of uh, individual rehearsal
1: Eliza McCarthy.
3: Well, um, Glass's music has kind of been running through my life since a really, really early age. I think the first record I listened to was his dance pieces when I think I must have been like seven or eight. And my dad introduced me to him and I kind of keep dipping in and out of a lot of his music throughout my life. Uh, Music in 12 parts sort of encapsulates all of that incredible early ensemble music he wrote sort of all of it in one yeah it's a very meaningful piece to be playing at the stage I think
1: I mean this is maybe more abstract I was listening to some of it on the way in and it's interesting when you start not listening to the notes but listening to it as a whole experience you start sort of hallucinating
3: yeah it's sort of crazy experience isn't it so the sound has a different relationship to you and maybe you stop making connections between each part and each player and it kind of turns into this cloud of sensation almost Mm. so it's going to be interesting to experience that from a performance perspective Mm. as well last time I played some of Glass's ensemble music. The thing you can't really rehearse for is the experience of the adrenaline and feeding into the stamina. I remember getting halfway through an hour-long performance going, oh wow, I'm in this. I'm in the middle of this. I can't stop and I can't go back. I've just got to push through. I wish I had more bananas. Um, So there's a lot of kind of chat that goes on in the head. Yeah, a a kind of different relationship you have with your body performing and how you listen and how you concentrate. It's almost like it's a meditation in that sense. Mm. You're very, very aware of everything that's going on within and without.
1: You often come across um, music written in unusual ways. I think this is written kind of more in a traditional form but even even so I mean is it is it a little bit like mathematics
3: oh god yes it really is it can be (laughs) and I was terrible at math so I don't know why I've chosen this job but it's some of the music that I approach it's sort of like kind of putting a puzzle together and also dissecting something to to figure out what it means and Mm. you know it's that kind of stereotype of music being a, a language Um, but really getting under the skin of it and figuring out, okay, well, why does a composer write something that at face value is so complicated, but Mm. most of the time, (laughs) there is a reason for it. And that's when you know it's really, really worth working on. I recently played an ensemble piece by Thomas Addis, and on the face of it, you know, he writes in crazy time signatures, but... You really learn that it makes complete sense and it feeds you as a musician and really informs the way you would interpret that piece of music and informs your sound. So you say yes to it and you say, okay, I'm going to spend the hours figuring um, this out and what he means by this and and really um, do it justice. because we can approach it with a really fresh perspective, mm. with really new ears um, and new players that, you know, adding to the life of it um, and bringing it to more of an audience. I think I read somewhere that in the first performance of it in England, or one of the first in England, there were um, maybe 11 people in the audience. and. I think it's nearly sold out, <laughs> um, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's still very, it feels very new. It feels, mm. I mean, Glass has such an incredible following and he's so prolific.
1: It's obviously a different experience for you as a performer and, and the audience. I mean, the audience don't have quite as much responsibility.
3: Yeah, they can, I think, probably walk in and out. <laughs> Um, but I'm excited, I really love getting involved in music which involves such physicality mm. um, it's really visceral and, and also you have to be so attuned to the other people around you that, who, are, who you're playing with I guess maybe the fear is being really attuned to an audience as well and maybe feeling the um, ebb and flow of concentration and listening mm. um, but I'm really excited about that Everyone, everyone speaks for themselves, really. But to create one voice, um, and there's no conductor, so um, there's a lot of counting, <laughs> um, and also looking out for cues and, and that kind of on the practical side of things. Um, but but yeah, everything's very um, very open, quite um, vulnerable. I think everyone's a bit vulnerable because everyone speaks for themselves. Mm. Um, each of the voices of the instruments are very um, unique I guess and also we're using keyboards so there's um, I always feel like playing uh, electronic keyboard is is very um, exposing
1: Finally, in New York, Timo Andres.
4: My first time playing his music was at the Barbican, which was 2013. And I I sort of got a a gig filling in for a pianist who who was ill. And so I ended up playing some some of Philip's etudes. That was sort of my introduction to performing his music. And since that time, I would say uh, I've gone on to play much more of his music and kind of immerse myself in it in a way. And I, I find that that's often how I I come to sort of understand and, and process the influence of something is actually by getting my hands on it through performance and, and through uh, through practice and, and study. I, I think sort of the shapes and processes of his music have made their way in into my own work in a way in the, over the past, uh, Three or four years. You can really choose to listen to this piece in at any number of sort of Micro to macro levels, I think, and, and get a lot out of it. You can sort of, you know, um, almost just sit back and, and bathe in it, these large sort of canvases of, of uh, one harmony or one color. But then you can also really focus in and, and listen to how the patterns are changing and, and sort of follow the moment to moment process. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of really remarkable
1: detail in there. Is it possibly, with this piece, one idea stretched and explored over four hours?
4: Well, I would say, you know, that yes, there are some overarching ideas that you could say, like, oh, this is an idea that goes through the entire piece. But actually, I, I mean, one of the things I've always loved about it is, is that there is an, an incredible variety within that. He says, OK, the, the, this is going to be the sort of parameters for this piece, like this is how the piece works. But then within those very tight uh, strictures, he gets this sort of incredible kaleidoscope of sounds and harmonies and, you know, it's, it's the old trick of imposing limitations on yourself as an artist, that that can actually lead to greater variety and, and greater, uh, a sort of more fertile starting place.
1: When preparing to perform, do you do much reading or research about the context and history of the music?
4: Well, it's some, that is something that I've uh, immersed myself in for a while. I, I've been fascinated with music from that period and, and sort of coming out of that uh, that sort of uh, downtown New York in, in the 60s and 70s. I've come to play a lot of that music and, and even... to to know some of the people who were making it, which I I feel incredibly lucky um, that that's a part of my life. So yeah, it's sort of a combination of, you know, reading about it, reading about the the sort of scene, um, and also talking to Philip and talking to people in Philip's ensemble who've been playing the piece over the past few decades. There's a real sense of like inherited tradition because there there's this very specific performance tradition associated with it that the group has developed over the over the years it's as, as much an oral tradition as like anything in in the quote unquote classical music world because the score it's there there is a score but it it, it only communicates like certain aspects of the way the piece works there there has been a lot of back and forth and I anticipate there will be much more before the process is over. I think the more you really think about the way we interpret music and the way we hear music, it's either, it, it's, it's all about repetition or non-repetition. Like there's only two options. It's like either you repeat something or you very pointedly don't. When I'm playing and I'm trying to sort of shape something, get, to give expression to a musical phrase or gesture or, you know, larger chunk of music, I'm looking for that internal logic. I'm looking for these sort of dichotomies. I'm looking for, you know, change versus stasis. You know, if I'm playing a piece by Philip Glass or a piece by Schumann or a piece by anyone. So I, th- I think there, you know, there certainly are qualities to the way that Philip uses repetition and the way that Steve uses it, uh, which are very different from each other, <laughs> I would add. It gets a little... I think there's this popular conception that Phillips music is all about repetition when it's actually really all about change. Like, it's all about focusing on the way... The starkness of it allows you to focus on that change even more clearly. I I guess I, I would almost compare it to you know, the ab- abstraction of, of like a, a Rothko painting or something, you can, you can look at it from different things will pop out to different people uh, and, and at different times. You know, it's, it's incredibly abstract music is, is really what it is. And I love that. I mean, I, I, I say, <laughs> you know, most of my favorite music is what I love about it is a degree of, of pure abstraction.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It, you know, it's
4: music about sound and harmony and counterpoint and the way that all these things can build a very, very large structure. The, the confidence with which it does that and sort of, sort of the inevitability is is what I get emotionally from the piece. I mean, it's a very, on, on a certain level, it's a very unemotional piece. It's very unemotional music. It's very sort of, it's very mes- methodical and precise. And, you know, there's n- there's no room for for the sort of romantic quote unquote interpretation that you would find in, in a lot of uh, classical chamber music. But, when you experience all of that planning, all all of that sort of careful craft piled on top of each other, it, I don't know. It's it's almost like the the feeling I get looking at a, a massive, beautiful cathedral or something, or or like so You you get a sense of this kind of massive human achievement is is almost greater than like, oh, listen to my emotional journey of an artist, you know. <laughs> It's not really about that. It's not possible to be tuned in for three and a half or four hours of music. It's, you know, your your brain just can't handle it. I'm looking forward to figuring out how my brain will handle it.
3: You'll be able to, you know, as an audience member, you'll be able to really see how a performer deals with playing something for such a long time, which can be quite interesting. Mm. Um, so it's so that's another part of the performance. So it's not just the sound of it, otherwise, you know you go and stick it on your record player, but being in being part of a live performance be really interesting.
2: I mean, I remember when I first heard, Einstein on the beach here at the Barbican in 2012 I mean that totally totally changed my life I never imagined that I would be feeling that way about um, anything yeah it's very exciting for for me to be doing this from a personal perspective yeah
1: Thanks to James McVinney, Eliza McCarthy and Timo Andres for speaking to me. The Guardian praised the performance for its dexterity, stamina and when all 12 parts came together, it created a sense of jubilation and euphoria. I'm Ben Maid, Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. The series is here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.